Hey guys, uh, we wanted to do a listener discretion at the beginning of this episode. Um, it deals with very extreme descriptions of child abuse um, and violence. If these could be distressing or triggering for you, please proceed to the next episode. We also wanted to drop in some resources If you or someone you know is uh, struggling with abuse, you can call the toll-free number for Kansas at 800-922-5330. And in Missouri, the toll-free number is 800-392-3738. And if you need information on A different state, you can visit childwelfare.gov. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really hope you enjoy it. for part two of the Gabriel Fernandez case. We have nothing witty to say with this opening, and we are skipping a breakfast nook, um, and we're just going to get right into it so we can finish this up and, you know, give you our closing thoughts, and once again, we're going to give you those resources. That's right. That's right. On May 22nd, Pearl, Gabriel's mother, and Isaro, which was his mother's boyfriend at the time, called 911. And Pearl told the operator that Gabriel wasn't breathing. And Isaro said that the injuries were from wrestling with his brother Ezekiel. So, blaming the children. Of course. And... Azaro also told the operator that he tried to find his heartbeat but felt nothing. Right. Which, and uh, the 911 operator actually tried to instruct Azaro Aguirre in performing CPR on him. Uh huh. And he did kind of pretend that he had done so. Yeah. But if you listen to the 911 call, which they do play in the documentary, It doesn't sound like I feel like you would be able to hear someone doing chest compressions. Yeah, the phone, the phone falling down on the ground. And and he wasn't performing CPR when the paramedics arrive. And you're supposed to perform CPR continuously until first responders arrive. Yes, that is the whole point. So he was clearly not doing that. Yeah. When the paramedics arrived, they were actually led inside by Gabriel's brother, Ezekiel, and they found Gabriel on the floor face up. They felt two fractures on his skull. They noticed broken ribs and also teeth that had been knocked out. 
there were, you know, those BB pellet marks all over his body, which is what had happened before. Mm-hmm. And they also noticed that his neck area almost seemed to have like some missing skin. Looking at the photographs, it almost seems like rubbed raw. It really looks like the top, the whole top layer of skin was peeled off. Yeah, like picture like after a sunburn, like right. that stuff has been peeled off. And you can tell the, because when you get a sunburn and then it tans and then you peel it off, you know, your skin around it is tan, but the stuff that's peeled off is kind of reddish. Yes, yes. That's what it looks like. Yes. Um, they also noted cigarette burns all over his body. Mm-hmm. And during the autopsy, they noted that in his stomach contents were cat feces and cat litter and nothing else. So that, I mean, that comes later in the trial, but it's worth noting now. Right. Paramedics immediately began life-saving measures and they rushed him to the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. And... Red flag, neither Asaro or Pearl went with them. Uh, Right. Uh, Neither one of them wanted to be in the ambulance with him when they were leaving the the house or uh, something of that nature. Pearl was worried about her cats and didn't want them to be left alone. Yeah. So... So paramedics get him to the hospital, and in the documentary, it opens up with the nurse talking about what she was seeing, and I don't know if I would have been able to, like, ever be a nurse again after that. Yeah, she, and you could tell that she is um, really, really affected by it. So she's the, they called her the Bay Nurse. So I'm guessing as cases come in from the ambulance, yeah, um, that doctors and nurses, as they're ch- like looking over him, are shouting out what they're finding, and she's got the chart, just writing everything down. Yeah. So keep in mind, Isaro said that he was wrestling with his brother, and Pearl said he slipped in the shower. Right. These are some of the things that the doctors and nurses noticed and charted as they were you know being called out you can imagine the scene of him being rushed in and you know the nurse talks about what it's like to be in a situation like that you don't have time to think you don't have time to get in your feelings Mm -hmm. about it Mm -hmm. you know all of your medical instincts are kicking in and doing whatever you possibly can and have to do Some of the things noted were subdermal hematoma, bullets in his lung and groin area, the BBs, cuts, burns, and bruises, and black eyes. I'm going to go ahead and just say we're not going to post any photos. No. Um, No. A lot of our sources link to articles that have the photos embedded within the article. So just know that if you click on any of the links... Most of those articles are going to have photos. Yeah. Um, And if you Google his name, photos are going to come up and they are disturbing. Yeah. We don't want to have that on our social media Mm -hmm. because if someone who might 
have might be re-traumatized by just seeing those photos, we would never want to do that to someone. Right. So you can't really trigger warning your Instagram. So no. we're not going to post any. But they exist if you if you feel like you need to see them. Yeah, and if they have the the medical body charts where it's, you know, the outline of a person. Yeah, it's not um, his face. Yeah, that points to and names the injuries that are seen and the amount of injuries that he had, whether they were fresh or old, is fucking insane. And that's one of the things the nurse says. Yeah, she and the injuries just kept coming to her and she just kept writing and writing and she's like this is so many injuries. Yeah. And um she did also say that he felt cold to the touch and that his internal body temperature was 88 degrees, which is not alive. That's right. That's somebody who has passed away. Right. At this point, the doctors and nurses know something something is wrong here. Right. Yeah, they know. They know. And this at this point is when the case is put in the hands of the kind of the children's division of the hospital. Yeah. Cuz they know that this is wrong. This is not just an incident where a child has fallen in the shower or mm-hmm. or wrestling or with the siblings. Wrestling with a sibling. This is clearly extreme child abuse and they are aware of this fully yeah as a medical professional seeing the injuries that he had and the number of injuries and the varying degrees of how old and how Mm -hmm. fresh they were i mean they were clearly able to tell that this was not something that happened tonight correct absolutely so it it takes them extensive measures to resuscitate him because he's just so injured. Right. He came in and the paramedics were unable to get him back. Mm-hmm. And the medical staff at the hospital really had to go to extreme lengths just to get his heartbeat back. Yeah. He was put on life support, of course. And obviously had traumatic brain injury. That's the subdermal hematoma. As the paramedics noted when they arrived to the apartment, he had had two places on his head where his skull was fractured. So he is put on life support. And this is clearly when police are involved and there's investigation happening. But he was kept on life life support for two days, and on May 24th of 2013, he was declared brain dead, and life support was removed, and he passed away. And Jennifer Garcia, his teacher, uh, she was at school when the principal came in on the 23rd and told her that he had passed away, but... Then told her that he was on life support at the children's hospital. So she had a little bit of hope that maybe he would pull through. And then subsequently got by the time I don't maybe it wasn't the 22nd that the principal told her it might have been 
the 24th or 25th because then it said by the time she found out that life support had been removed and he had died, that had all happened before he had even told her. Right. She said the last thing on his desk was his Mother's Day card. Yeah, that's so fucking sad, dude. Oh, my God. It's so sad. And she still has the Mother's Day card with this picture in it. And it's gut-wrenching because in the photo, he looks like he went through a boxing match. And he was still smiling. And he's smiling and he is telling his mom that he loves her Mm -hmm. and he has these little coupons to do the dishes and that he'll be good yeah and i just want to sprout wings and fly to where she is in prison and like throttle her yeah 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 i um i just want to say right now if you're like a listener and you have like a kid that you don't want just like drop them off with us i know if you have a child that you don't want you you do not have to keep them no take them to your nearest police station or fire station yes um i'm sure you have a family member somewhere that would be more than willing to at least take them off your hands yes and call 911 and they will come pick them up yeah and you know what and for parents that are not abusers. Right. It is okay to need a break from your kids. Yes, it is. It is okay. Call a friend. Call your parents. Call your siblings. Call your cousins. You need a break from your kids every now and then, and that is 100% understandable. So you can breathe. So your child can breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, my oldest went to stay with his aunt last week for like three or four days to get him out of the house so he could have some Caden time without having to share everything with his brother. To be in a different environment. To for a be in a different while. environment. You know, he's been inside since the freaking pandemic hit uh, doing virtual yeah. school. Yeah. And my sister was like, let me just take him for a few days. Like, nothing against me or the situation. It's just. A change of scene for a little while since nobody has been able to really go anywhere and do anything. Yeah. So that's why it always blows my mind that people who abuse their children want them around in the first place. Yeah. And in this situation, Pearl didn't have him for his entire life. No. She made the decision to get him so that they could get more welfare money. Yeah. And she knew that. Uh, Michael Carenza and David Martinez wanted him. Yeah. She knew that her parents wanted him. Her family loved him and wanted him and wanted to take care of him. She did not have to, to have him. Yeah. She could have left him where he was loved and taken care of and safe. Mm-hmm. And this is silly. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, I understand that she wanted the money, but for fuck's sake, like, just, just give him back. Yeah, just stop. Just stop it. And what was really heartbreaking when David Martinez was interviewed is um, they weren't allowed to see him. Yeah. Uh, I think they saw him when he was still on life support. 
and he kept telling Gabriel, even though he wasn't conscious, he kept telling him, you're coming home with me, you're coming home with me. Mm -hmm. And it was just so devastating because, like, you could tell that David Martinez really thought or what hoped so much that he would recover mm-hmm. and just knew this is it. I'm I'm not gonna let him go back to her. Yeah. After this, this is the this is the final straw. I'm stepping in. Mm-hmm. And then he dies. Yeah. And it's just uh fuck me up. Obviously authorities have finally realized that Pearl and Asaro Aguirre are fucking monsters mm-hmm. and have murdered the child. So they are charged. Asaro Aguirre is charged with capital murder with the special circumstance of torture. Now, law school is going to come in clutch right here again. So... The prosecution was seeking the death penalty against Asaro Aguirre. And this means that the prosecution has a very tall order at trial. Mm -hmm. So just for first degree murder, they have to prove the murder and they have to prove that the murder was committed with premeditation. Mm -hmm. So they have to prove those two things and then... In order for them to be able to seek the death penalty, they have to add the special circumstance of torture. So now they have to prove murder, premeditation, and the special circumstance of torture. So the defense for Asaro Aguirre, they are trying to argue. They're not trying to dispute that he caused Gabriel's death. Mm -hmm. Because you can't. Right. You fucking did it. They're trying to argue that it's not first degree murder because there's no premeditation and that it should be second degree murder. So this defense is what in law school we called heat of passion murder. Mm -hmm. So Aguirre's story is that Gabriel had told Pearl... That she should leave Aguirre. Yeah. And when Pearl told Aguirre that Gabriel had said this, Gabriel denied it. And Asaro was enraged. And that's when he started hitting Gabriel. And that he was, quote, seeing red. I that just fucked me off so i couldn't even just like you know what normal people do when they see red or lose their temper they like scream into a pillow or punch a hole in the wall yeah i don't know storm out call his grandparents to come pick him up take a drive do drugs even have a drink there are so many other fucking things you can do but he said That he saw Red and he was in a blind rage and lost control and couldn't stop hitting Gabriel. Here's the thing. I bet there are children all over this world that tell their moms or their dads they don't like their boyfriend or girlfriend. Of course. 
and I'm not even saying Gabriel said this. I'm just saying, if that were the case. It's not uncommon. No one gets so mad over a child's opinion that they just beat them to death. Right. It just is. It's just absurd that he would even say that that's the reason. But that's what the defense is using as Mm -hmm. the reasoning that it, there's no premeditation and that he was in an uncontrollable rage, so it's second-degree murder. So these are the two conflicting sides. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people get a little confused when it comes to premeditation, and I get it. The term premeditation might be almost deceiving in in this kind of context because most people hear premeditation and think of a plan like that someone has planned this out but premeditation can occur within the span of one second yes it goes to the intent so he could have heard pearl could have told asaro giri that gabriel said this and he could have in one second decided I'm killing him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need to have a plan for this to be premeditated. Yeah, it's not like it needs to be written down somewhere. No, he doesn't need to have any type of written plan, nothing. Premeditation and the intent to kill can occur in one second. Mm -hmm. So that is what the prosecution is arguing, that he heard this from Pearl, and in that instant, decided to kill Gabriel. Yeah. I just want to say the prosecutors who argued this case were fucking phenomenal. Mm -hmm. They were. John Hatami and Scott Yang were amazing in this case. Yeah. And it was John that like this case really meant a lot to him because he kind of had a troubled childhood growing up Mm -hmm. and he just knew that he was going to pick Scott to try this case with him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, they did an excellent job and they were very passionate about it. Yes. And um, you could really tell that they were super passionate about this case and that they felt it was a really, really important case because... John even says in the documentary, he says, the L.A. County Superior Court, the ninth floor is where the most important cases go. Mm -hmm. Um, O.J. was tried on the ninth floor. Uh, The doctor in the Michael Jackson case was tried on the ninth floor. Yeah. And he said that Gabriel's case is the most important case ever tried on the ninth floor. So that just kind of shows how passionate these two prosecutors were in nailing Asaro for this case. Yeah. That those are the two kind of sides here. There was some mention of potentially a plea deal with Asaro Giri, but I don't think John Hatami and Scott Yang were they were definitely not down for that. Mm -hmm. And the defense really wasn't either. Yeah. So They were definitely going to trial, and they were definitely seeking the death penalty, which was kind of unprecedented in this kind of case at this time. Uh, Seeking the death penalty in a child abuse case is very, very rare. 
So it was one of the first, if not the first, of this kind of case to seek the death penalty. And the jury itself, in Asaro's case, was made up of seven women and five men, which is obviously strategic. Of course, this would affect men as fathers, but I think a mother is going to have a very, very intense reaction to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the instinct is just a little different. The instinct is a little different because moms literally grow a child in their belly. Yeah, and not saying that moms love their children more than their dads do. That's not what we're saying at all. Of course not. It's it's just a different kind of bond, I think. It's a different kind of bond, and I really think there's a different kind of like chemical reaction in the brain. Because there are different hormones right. in men and women. Yeah. So that was the makeup of the jury, which was definitely strategic on the prosecution side. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Obviously, the evidence they presented, the prosecution showed all the photos of Gabriel, his injuries, the body chart, just close-up photos of the abrasions, the missing skin on his neck and chin, his legs, where the ligatures were. They just, they even rolled the cubby in. Yeah, I mean, in a case like this, you really kind of have to hit the jury. You have to. In the feelings. You have to. And there's a podcast that I have recently been listening to called The Prosecutors. It's two prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And they're really awesome. They cover some really good cases. They talk about Michael Peterson, which is one of my favorite cases to talk about Mm -hmm. that dude is guilty as fuck (laughs) but anyway um they were talking about when it comes to presenting case at trial for the jury at the end of the day the best story wins yes john and scott really knew that they needed to show the jury every single mark that was on this child's body yeah And every single thing that he was made to endure for those eight months. Yeah. And he said multiple times in his address to the jury, like his opening statement and his closing statement, he said, now I'm asking you to find this person guilty of murder Mm -hmm. and murder by torture. Yeah. And I think it's also worth mentioning that Pearl and Hazaro were not like tried together correct they were tried separately and had separate defense teams yes so a lot of what they go over a sorrow in the dock is when you really start getting to know the prosecutors yes during this part yes so yeah it was powerful Mm-hmm. um i couldn't imagine what it would be like to be a juror on that trial uh They get so many jury instructions, especially for a trial like this, when there are very specific points that the prosecution has the burden of proving, Mm -hmm. which in a trial, the burden of proof is always on the prosecution. The defense does not have a burden. Mm -hmm. The prosecution's burden is beyond a reasonable doubt. And what I liked about John's closing statement for Asaro's trial was... He didn't say that he was guilty of murder beyond a reasonable doubt. He said he's guilty of murder and torture beyond all doubt. Yeah. I noticed that immediately when he said it. Yeah. So I thought that was a really 
excellent way for him to phrase it. Beyond all doubt, this guy did it. Yeah. There's no reasonableness in this equation. Uh, Yeah, at all. No doubt at all. So um, that's the prosecution's burden of proof in any trial is beyond a reasonable doubt. So a juror has to be instructed not only on the charges and what they mean, Mm -hmm. but how you get to that charge. Yes. Because jurors are... They're just regular people. They're just people. regular citizen people. They're not trained in the law, obviously. Yeah. Um, usually, if you're in law enforcement or an attorney, you're never picked for a jury. Mm-hmm. They they don't want people who are legally trained. So usually you're not. But I feel like if I were on the jury, and one of the jurors that was interviewed, she was a young woman. She was probably she was probably our age, between our ages. Yeah. She was young. She like, one of the first things she said was, there's not a doubt in my mind that he was guilty of first-degree murder. Yeah. That that would have been it's me. It's all there. They did deliberate for five hours because there was one juror who was hung up on the premeditation element. I think he wasn't... Understanding. He wasn't, yes, he wasn't convinced of the nuances of legal premeditation. Mm-hmm. The fact that it can occur in a second. And he was hung up on that. But eventually, they came back five hours later with a guilty of first-degree murder. Well, and legal definitions of premeditation aside, what do you think the person who is abusing someone and tying them up and locking them up and not feeding them, what do you think their end goal is? Right. To then nurse them back to health? Right. And teach them the responsibilities of life and set them off into the world? Yeah. And I think that is where the other 11 jurors were of that mind. Right. They're like, of course, the only outcome of this kind of continued treatment is going to be the death of the child. Right. Any reasonable person is going to understand and see that. Understand that. So, but eventually they were all, because in a jury trial, you have to have a unanimous jury. Otherwise, a hung jury means a mistrial and Mm -hmm. you have to do the trial over again. So they did become unanimous and find him guilty of first degree murder with the special circumstance of torture. Justice was served here. He fucking deserved it. And then they had to go into the penalty phase Um, which is two separate hearings. I think there was about three weeks in between the guilty verdict and the sentencing. Um, So the prosecution was seeking the death penalty. I think in the doc, you can see the characters, witnesses, I guess. Um, Victim impact statements were made by Gabriel's family. Jennifer Garcia testified. Yeah. I think Asaro's family also made statements I feel like if I was related to that piece of shit person, I would have just, I, if I would have went to make a statement, I would have been like, yeah, I, it's, everybody has their opinions on the death penalty, whether you are for or against. It's such a gray area. You kind of like on one hand, like want them to think about what they did for the rest of their life till they're old and gray. But yeah. at the same time, you're like, fucking exterminate that human. Yeah, I think... It's so hard because... Because then you also don't want them to have the the things like rec time, TV time, commissary, the three ability, hot meals a day. The ability to get a degree. 
Right. Um, the ability to read a good book here and there. Yeah. I don't want you to do any of that. Yeah. At all. Yeah. It's such a double-edged sword. Yeah. And I think everyone has their uh, own opinion on that. But, you know, yeah. the final verdict on these, perfect. Yeah. So in at sentencing, he was given the death penalty and is now on death row awaiting execution. Everybody who gets sentenced to death row files appeals there are certainly appeals happening and the appeals process is long as fuck Mm -hmm. but i mean i don't know he's he's probably never gonna get an appeal i would say not the ladder not in a case like this not in a case like this when you know the prosecution did their fucking job yeah and everyone agreed and everyone agreed so courtroom footage shows and i know this was a jury trial but it shows like the judge like you can see the disgust uh-huh. on his face. And he even addresses them personally and says, in my 20 years on the bench, this is the worst case I have ever had to yeah. preside over. And when he reads the sentence, you can tell that he's just like, thank fuck. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what needed to happen. Yeah. He is certainly guilty of first degree murder. So that's a sorrows trial. Honestly, I was surprised that that they did deliberate a lot longer deciding the death penalty than they did on deciding guilt. Yeah. Which makes sense because everybody has their own opinions about the death penalty. But I don't know. I mean, I I typically tend to go with life in prison. My my general thought is to just send them to fucking prison and forget about it. Like, you're just go away. Yeah. This one is so much harder Especially because if you can treat that child so horrifically for such a prolonged amount of time, you're not going to feel bad about it when you're sitting in prison. Absolutely You're not, not going to think about him. No. You're not going to go to sleep every night and see his face when you close your eyes. We are. hmm You know? We have been so immersed in the research for this case, watching the documentary, reading the articles, looking at the photos, that... I've actually had dreams about him mixed with weirdly Boo and Mason multiple nights in a row. Mm-hmm. But Asaro Aguirre is sitting in fucking prison not thinking about him. No, he's not. And neither is his mom. And neither is his mom. That's just the, the fact of the matter here. Yeah. So what we're going to call this justice Pearl's case is a completely different matter. Yes, it is. So Pearl was charged with the same charges. Originally, these cases were going to be tried together. But Pearl, Pearl's defense, they put forth the fact that Pearl has actual developmental delays. Mm -hmm. And cognitively she is not at what you would think a normal adult would be at yeah i mean she didn't finish school she made it to the eighth grade yeah and 
I mean, I agree with those statements. Right. Um, does it excuse her for what she did and what she allowed to happen to her own child? Absolutely not. No, of course not. Her developmental delay, I think she's not autistic. No. She's not suffering from any type of special needs of that nature. No. But they did. Obviously, she was evaluated and the fact that she was going to have to have a cognition eval before standing trial meant that if they were going to be tried together, it would delay Asaro Aguirre's trial in order for her to be deemed competent. Yeah. So that's when they decided to split them and try them separately so that they could at least convict Asaro Aguirre and then take care of Pearl's case separately, which I think in the end worked better because with Pearl's medical situation happening that might have persuaded the jury to go with second degree murder on both Mm -hmm. so it definitely worked out better that they separated the cases yeah so with pearl she didn't actually stand trial she was evaluated and found to have low intellectual function she quit school after the eighth grade She began using drugs around age nine, which your brain is developing then. So to start doing drugs at such a young age, that had a huge impact on her cognitive development. Yes. And she, I mean, she certainly experienced trauma in her life too. She did. Um, They found her to have depressive disorder possible personality disorder, possible PTSD, developmental delay. She has said that she was gang raped and she has said that her an uncle of hers, it didn't say which uncle, yeah, but not the uncles that looked after Gabriel when he was young. A right. different uncle. Um she alleged that an uncle attempted to rape her. And that she had suffered from an eating disorder. So she had a lot of issues happening, which honestly, a lot of these issues had already been discovered and documented prior to her having custody of Gabriel. So that should have been a part of the investigation. Right. If you are not emotionally or mentally capable of taking care of a young child, you shouldn't be. And exactly. And she had three kids. She had three kids that she was taking care of and two more that she didn't have that she had lost custody of or given up. Yeah. So none of that came up for the caseworkers when they were doing these investigations that she already was documented to suffer from these. And even Pat Clement, when she let them withdraw from the services that they from the Family Preservation Unit of DCFS. She noted, mom's emotionally overwhelmed. That should be a red flag. Yeah. If the parent seems overwhelmed with parenting, that does not say to me, close this case. Right. That says to me there are issues and this parent needs support at the very least. Yeah. And in this case, that child needs removed. Mm -hmm. Clearly. Absolutely. So I just don't understand. It's so fucking weird. Pearl was charged with 
first-degree murder with a special circumstance of torture. And in her case, um, due to her cognitive disabilities and all of the findings from her cognitive evaluation, the defense sought a plea deal for her that she would plead guilty to the charges if the death penalty was taken off the table. So the prosecution did end up agreeing to this Mm -hmm. deal, and she pled guilty to the charges and received life in prison without the possibility of appeal or parole. And in the doc, John Hatami said that Gabriel's sister, Virginia, actually asked him to accept the deal because Ezekiel and Virginia did not want to testify against her. Yeah, of course they didn't. Of course not. So Pearl is still serving her sentence. And like, I I think we talked about this in part one, that in an article I read that she had been attacked in prison. Yeah. Which is not surprising. I was talking to Cheyenne about that the other day. Yeah. And also the four caseworkers who were involved in Gabriel's case were also charged. Um, Greg Merritt, Stephanie Rodriguez, Kevin Baum, and Pat Clement were all charged with child abuse and falsifying documents and face up to 11 years in prison. This is one another one of those things where were there non-actions and the decisions that they made that were clearly incorrect? Do those warrant criminal charges? I don't really know how to express my opinion on these. Right. If they if they could have been seeing what was truly happening somehow, I think with, without a doubt, they would have removed him from that home. I don't right. think that they had the time to focus on it as they should have mm-hmm. and should be able to on all cases. Right. I'm trying to think of the word. I just don't think they had the ability or the time to look into it as much as they should have because of how terribly organized the system is right it's it's so difficult because on the one hand we know that social workers and these kinds of departments and governments are understaffed overworked underpaid the department itself is underfunded we know all of that and that's playing a role here right of course it's playing a role here. If I think if these people would have seen what was happening, yeah. They would have taken they would have taken him, but like I said, they didn't spend enough time on the case. Yeah. To I, really soak up those details. And I mean And unfortunately, they kept taking the word of fucking Pearl. Yeah, they weren't following their own policies and they didn't interview Gabriel alone out they only talked to him in the presence of Pearl, which is against policy. Right. Um, they only documented the first injury, which was the injury from the belt buckle. They Stephanie Rodriguez did start a body chart that visit, but never marked any of the reported injuries after that. So on his body chart that she started, it only shows the um, marks from the belt on his butt. Yeah. it. She never marked for the scabs on his head from the haircut. She never marked his busted lip. Never noted on the body chart the BB gun injuries. Right. Um, 
So it's just not being thorough. My hang up with saying that it's strictly overwork is that the decisions to close the case, the decisions not to petition a judge for removal, she had two options, petition a judge for removal or submit it to Greg Merritt's family preservation unit. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the same amount of work for either path. Yeah. So, and I think a big hang up with the system is that the end goal is to keep them where they are at. Yes. But and I I know for anyone who is charged with anything and that's not really a good like analogy, but I think parents who are being looked into for possible violent abuse mm-hmm. should instead of the whole, you know, innocent until proven guilty should be treated completely opposite. Yeah, I think... And I know a caseworker has no authority to be like, you are abusing your child. Yeah. I understand that there are procedures that have to be taken, but let's change things to where we believe the children? I don't don't know. Yes. If Caden came up to you and said, my mom is hitting me, Wouldn't you be like, that is so off the fucking wall that I have to believe you? Yes. Yes. Because you know that kids don't just go, eight-year-old kids Mm -hmm. don't just go around talking shit and making up lies about their parents. Yeah, exactly. They Um, have, they're not, there is no malicious part of their brain to think, I'm going to ruin my mom's life. Right. Of course not. And of course throw not. myself down these stairs to get some bruises to make it yeah. look like I got abused. Yeah. That's a, an eight-year-old child is not going to come to that conclusion. They're not going to make make that up, no. probably. So really, these charges that they're going for is like gross negligence and yeah. criminal negligence, which it's pretty rare that negligence is going to be charged criminally. Usually negligence will go civil. Yeah. Reckless endangerment and gross negligence is where you're going to go to criminal negligence, which you do not need intent. That's why it typically goes civil is because negligence does not require intent. Yeah. So for criminal negligence, there has to be a reckless disregard of human life. That is so hard in this case Because you have the two supervisors who never laid eyes on the child. Kevin Baum and Greg Merritt never laid eyes on the child. And so they're relying on Stephanie Rodriguez and Pat Clement, the two social workers who did visit the home. They're relying on those two caseworkers to properly document Mm -hmm. what they're seeing at the home. And you have Stephanie Rodriguez who didn't mark any other physical injuries on the body chart except for the one. Mm -hmm. So you have her supervisor only seeing that. Right. And so he is not in a position. He isn't seeing the kid. So he's relying on Stephanie to know when she sees the injuries, whether or not this child is actually being abused. Right. And then you have Pat Clement, who Greg Merritt is depending on her reports on the child. So, I can see dropping the charges maybe on the supervisors because they didn't actually visit the home, didn't actually see the kid, and they were relying on Stephanie and Pat. The fact that they never, that they just were simply not following policy and not interviewing the kids alone and not 
asking for medical treatment, I really, I'm leaning towards the not seeking medical treatment, especially Mm -hmm. after the BB gun incident, as being grossly negligent. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Now, these charges against these four social workers were, they were upheld by um, Judge Lamelli, who tried Asaro and Pearl. He did say that there was enough evidence to proceed to trial for uh, reckless indifference to human life. Um, But an appeals court ordered him to dismiss the charges. Yeah. So these charges against the social workers have been dropped. I'm so conflicted on it, on whether or not it's it should have been. I do think the supervisors probably it should have been dropped. They obviously made mistakes and should have followed up. But I, it said that Greg Merritt at any one time could have upwards of 280 cases that he was supervising. Yeah. And we, I mean, and we completely agree with the statement that the system is, is, it's overrun. It's just, we, why aren't we funding this system better? Yeah. I mean, why is it, why is it the way that it is? Like, I can't phrase that in, in yeah. any better way. Why aren't we funding education and the Department of Family Services why, why are we not doing that? Why are we not concerned enough with our youth? That's right. Why are we so concerned with other elements of our government and not... Why are politicians in Congress millionaires and DCFS can't even get staffed enough... To have appropriate caseloads. Yeah. And I mean, and all government employees, like we said in part one, are ridiculously underpaid and overworked. Yeah. When I worked for the state, uh, I did, I, I was at the state for two years and I did my first year, I worked in the domestic department, which handled divorce, child custody, and stuff like that. And then the second year, I worked criminal. And I did class A and class B felonies, which are the worst felonies. Mm-hmm. The first case that I was in charge of that was a jury trial. It was the worst case ever. Mm-hmm. It was they would involve children. And one of them was eleven, one of them was seven. And he was sentenced to life sentences that were the equivalent of four hundred years to be served consecutively. I had to enter that judgment in the system. Mm-hmm. It was my responsibility to key in the system his sentence. Mm-hmm. I made less than $13 an hour. And I sentenced someone to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So contextualize that. It's my responsibility to enter that, print the judgment, and have the judge sign it, which makes it official. And I made less than $13 an hour. The gravity of your responsibilities and what you are paid are way out of whack in the government. Well, and it's so easy to become a caseworker, a social worker now. Yes. Which, with how they are paid, as it should be. Yes. Because people are constantly putting themselves into decades worth of debt to then go on to maybe find a job in the field that they have a degree in. Um, But when they do, they're not paid shit for it. Yeah, we have people out here expecting a bachelor's degree, which on average costs $80,000 to get, and they want to pay you 15 bucks an hour. Right. And so 
you know, I would say for the most part, people who become caseworkers or child social workers or whatever the different terms are for these people. Um, I mean, they go into these things because they care for children and want to make a difference in children's lives. And I, I can't imagine at the end of the day how they feel about the job that they've done. Yeah. Knowing that the power they hold is so little in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though removal of children from a home is based on their observations and their notes and their responsibility is to stay consistent with those cases, mm-hmm. how can you possibly stay consistent when you are dealing with 30 different cases mm-hmm. as one human being. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I just, I couldn't do it. No. But I will say I agree that these two could have done a better job. And if all of the authorities that were called in the weeks and months leading up to the inevitable murder of Gabriel would have taken these things fucking seriously. He might still be here with us today. And he would be almost 16 years old. He would be getting his driver's license. He would be so close to graduating high school. Yet here we are talking about an eight-year-old child who was murdered not that long ago. Yeah. And it just shows how badly... The system is failing. And I had a conversation with this the other day with my coworkers. When children are removed from homes or then put into foster care, don't get me started on the foster care system. Yeah. There are great people out there who foster children. Of course. Um, 100%. I would say the majority of them are great, kind-hearted people. Yes. But there are also people who foster children for the paycheck. Of course. And tell me why. It is so incredibly fucking hard to adopt a child out of a situation like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, why? Why is it so difficult for good, hardworking people with a good home to adopt a child? I don't understand. People don't adopt children because of that. I couldn't give, like, an exact number of how much money it costs to adopt a child. But it is thousands of dollars. Maybe if we made adoption easier and people who foster children have a bigger possibility of being able to keep those children and adopt them, Mm -hmm. you know, 100%, Mm -hmm. maybe it would be easier for caseworkers to remove children from homes. Now, there are situations where a kid can be removed from a home and the parent can be rehabilitated if they... I can't say that just because you have... a a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction that you are a bad parent of course not you need help and i think that your child should be removed from that situation until you're able to better yourself as not only just an adult human being but a parent exactly but in these situations i think if a child is removed from a home and then put into foster care they should be able to make it easier for even someone like me and my husband To Mm -hmm. prove, here's how much money we make. Please give us a mental evaluation. Mm -hmm. Please do a background check. Mm -hmm. Please interview our children. Interview every person we fucking know. Yeah. And then give us the child. Yeah. I mean, it would be hard for Dakota and I 
to adopt a child because, well, first of all, we're not married, mm-hmm. so we would never be considered. Yeah. Even though we have lived together consistently for the last eight years, mm-hmm. we own a home, we have our own vehicles. In our home, the child would have its own room, mm-hmm. would have its own bathroom, would be going to a very well-reputed school. Mm-hmm. Even though all of those boxes would be checked, the fact that we aren't married, yeah. done. We would we would never be accepted because yeah. we're not married. And, you know, people say, well, you know, why don't you try to foster a child? I can't do that. Yeah. I that just, would be tough. It would be tough because there's a possibility of them going back to their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the fucking organization as a whole yeah, needs yeah. to be 100% re-evaluated. Yes. And hopefully someday that'll happen. Please tell me why we can't just make marijuana legal medicinally and recreationally and use those tax dollars because you know the tax revenue from legal recreational marijuana would be fucking huge just look at colorado they've had millions and millions of dollars and then can we just funnel that those tax dollars to fund our children's services yeah our dcfs agencies our social workers education can't we just do that yeah you know kids really get the short end of the stick when it comes to just growing up they really do if you don't have money to send your kid to a private school the education system is not set up to to help them very much yeah and if you're born and have a shit set of parents You're fucked. You're just on your own. Yeah. If you can make it to adulthood and get yourself out of the situation that you were born into, like, fucking bravo. Yeah. Because it's hard even growing up with an amazing family. Yeah. Just because schools suck the way just the country is ran Mm -hmm. sucks sometimes. Yeah. And and teachers are so underpaid, like wildly underpaid. Most teachers, a lot of teachers that I know, especially um, junior high and high school teachers have master's degrees. Mm -hmm. So, but they make freaking $40,000 a year. It's insanity Mm -hmm. that we expect our, our teachers to be so highly educated and yet we're not going to pay them very much it's crazy no it's so insane and i could probably talk about it until i die yeah because it's just something that i just i i just feel really passionately about it and and and, uh, and teachers they do the best that they can like jennifer garcia mm-hmm. she did everything she could and it yeah. it didn't matter yeah And she even said that eventually she got to the point where she knew DCFS wasn't going to help Gabriel. And she couldn't tell him that it's going to get better because she didn't – she knew it wasn't going to. Yeah. But she just hoped that he would get to an age where he would be able to get out. Yeah. Like, Have his own voice. Yes. One day you're going to be 18. She Mm -hmm. said that's what she kept saying. Like, one day you're going to be 18, you're going to get to leave, and you're going to be free and on your own. And – 
Unfortunately, that is just not the case. Yeah. He would almost be there now. I know. At 16, you can get emancipated. Yeah. So we were lucky enough to know someone who works in the social working industry. A person I graduated with, her name is Kirsty. She is a social worker and um, she doesn't work with children. She's more in adult mental health. But she and she works at a local facility in the Kansas City area. We're not going to name it, obviously, just for her own privacy reasons. Right. But she was able to give us some insight as to the system because being a social worker, she kind of knows that. Right. And she was also able to pass along our questions to some reputable sources uh, specifically about child abuse cases. Yes. So I sent her a series of questions and she was kind enough to forward those on to some contacts that could give us reputable answers. Yes. So I am going to ask the question and Emily is going to give the answer that we that was emailed back to us. So these are going to be verbatim answers. Yes. First question was, what is the criteria for opening an investigation after a report is made? Criteria for opening an investigation after a report has been made is on a case-by-case basis. The investigator reviews the evidence and the degree of abuse. They also look at if the abuse recently happened or if it was in the past. Is the child photographed? Children's Division is not allowed to take photographs. They have law enforcement take pictures for them. Law enforcement should be going to the home with the Child Division worker on investigations. Now, this is something that is probably Missouri-specific. Yes, I'm sure those little stipulations vary state by state, I would assume. That's what I'm assuming. So do caseworkers keep track of how many reports are made involving the same family? And does this play a role in the child's risk classification? Once a family has had a child abuse or neglect report on them, the number of reports after that will be tracked by Children's Division Computer Program. The number of reports the family has had or if the child has been removed before does put them at a higher risk. Just because a family has a large number of reports on them doesn't mean that the allegations are true. A neighbor could be making false reports because they don't like the parents, for example. That answer, I think, I thought was just a little bit odd. I do understand that there are instances where people make reports that are not true. Yes. That does happen. I think there are for sure. I feel like... A large number of reports in the grand scheme of things should matter. And it does. She did say that it does matter. It puts them at a higher risk if there are a large number of reports. But I feel like the caveat of people could be reporting just a report. I feel like a social worker shouldn't have that idea in their mind. Yeah. Agreed. When does removal become required? Children's division is not allowed to remove any children themselves. The only professionals able to do so are law enforcement, doctors, and juvenile officers. If the alleged perpetrator lives in the same home as the child and the child is unable to remain safely in the home, then the child could be removed. 
When a child is removed, Children's Division always looks at family first for placement. The first possible placement would be the other parent if they were not residing in the same home as the perpetrator or if the perpetrator is the parent and leaves the home and the other parent is still residing in the home, signs a safety plan and will not let the other perpetrator around the child. If the worker is unable to place with the other parent, then they will be looking at placing the child with other family members. The investigator will also look into placing the child with friends of the family or even teachers. Hmm. That I did not know. I didn't know that either. It makes sense, though. Yeah, I mean. If they don't have any other family. Yeah, and your kid spends most of their awake time with their teachers and babysitters anyways. Right, right. The last resort would be placing the child in a foster home. If more than one child is removed from the home, children's division will try as hard as they can to keep the siblings together when placing. In order for a removal to occur, the child has to be in immediate danger. The perpetrator has access to them and allegations have to be severe. To help the investigator analyze the risk level, they will look at the age of the victim, child, and the other children in the home. The perpetrator's relationship to the child, the type of abuse that occurred, is the child verbal or nonverbal, when the abuse took place... An infant is at a higher risk than a teenager if they have a bruise on their cheek. Reading that kind of sounds weird, but they're basically saying for there to be a removal, these are the things that they look at to start that process of removal. Right. Obviously, abuse of an infant is more severe than knocking around a teenager. Neither are okay. Right, right. But yeah, that's pretty much how that is. Yeah. Does family preservation take precedence? The goal is always reunification, unless it is sexual abuse or significant amount of physical abuse, where the unification goal would not be safe for the child. Again, it is a case-by-case basis. Yeah. I'm not a child psychologist, of course, but... I feel like with this kind of work, they should take out the end goal entirely. Yeah. I feel like if you're going into each case with the ultimate idea of reunification and family preservation being the goal, kind of like law enforcement going into a murder investigation with a perpetrator already in mind, they're going to bend their investigation kind of towards that goal as opposed to letting the evidence determine the goal. Right. So if we, if they stopped going into this with the idea of reunification with, as the goal and instead either didn't have a set goal or change that goal to ultimately the safety of the child only. Yes. I feel like investigations would be much more um, unbiased. Yeah. Because they seem very biased towards reunification. Mm-hmm. And in the doc, one of the um, therapists or child psychologists that's interviewed talks about how these kinds of investigations consider parent rights instead of child rights. Yeah. So the reunification kind of goes to that. They're looking at parent rights and they're not 
considering child rights. Yeah, it just doesn't sit well. Right, right. It it doesn't. I really think that having the ultimate goal be reunification really is problematic. Yeah, especially in abuse cases. I, I think if there is physical abuse or sexual abuse of any kind, reunification should be taken off the table immediately. Yeah, because... The thing is, you can rehabilitate yourself from being an alcoholic or a drug addict. Yes. Um, you can take anger management classes. Most people who physically abuse children, mm-hmm. not I mean, not even including physically harming adult people, most people who are physically or sexually abusing children are probably not going to change. Right. And you see that with with domestic abuse as well. Um, a domestic partner who, who abuses, they typically reoffend. Yeah. A lot of them will, like, when one partner gets out of an abusive relationship, that abuser's next relationship typically involves abuse as well. Yeah. I mean, why would you take that risk with a child? Yes, exactly. And I just don't understand because... Children have basically no rights when it comes to even reporting on their own parents. Yeah. Because for some reason, the first thought is, oh, they're probably lying. Yeah. They're exaggerating what happened. Let's ask the parent. Yeah. Are kids dramatic? Absolutely. I mean, like in part one, when I said that my kid was like, I'm cold at night. Yeah. It made it sound like I didn't give the kid blankets. Yeah. But if he was telling people that I'm hitting him and he has visible injuries on his body, put two and two together. Yeah. It does not take advanced deductive skills to make those connections. Let's just get them out of there. Yes. Yes. And she did give us a few extra pieces of information that the reputable sources Uh, passed along. And these are things that really, really go to the core of the issues that happened in the investigation into Gabriel's case. Number one, first and foremost, the child must be interviewed alone and all the children in the home must be interviewed. So those are things that just simply did not happen in Gabriel's case. And this that piece was a part of the DCFS department policy in LA County. That was part of their policy. They just didn't follow it. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't have, they were already in the home. It wouldn't have taken that long for them to just pull Gabriel into an adjacent room and yeah. interview them alone or ask Pearl and Nassaro to step outside. Yeah. It would have taken no extra time or work for them to do that. Exactly. And they just simply did not. Parents and guardians must be contacted and interviewed as well, um, assuming, and the perp must be interviewed. So, obviously, sometimes the perpetrator is not the parents. Right. So, in that case, parents and perp must be interviewed. Obviously, in this case, perp and parent were the same. Right. And then she gave me the risk levels. Educational neglect. They would need to observe the child within 72 hours from the initial report assessment 
would be observe the child within 24 hours of initial report. And this is a mild to moderate risk level. Mm -hmm. And then you have investigation, which requires the worker to observe the child within one to three hours from the initial report. So that's high risk. Yeah. I didn't fully understand the risk levels of assessment or investigation, those titles. Yeah, I don't get that. I'm guessing that goes to the process. Like this is going to, we're going to assess this a little deeper. We're going to open an investigation officially. I, that makes sense. But can we just make them more clear? Like this is low risk. This is moderate risk. Risk, this is high risk. Yeah. That seems much more clear. But I'm guessing that's going to the action and not the descriptor. Right. This brings us around to some activism Mm -hmm. that we can all take a few minutes to do. Now, I have done this already, but much like you have Amber Alerts coming out of a, a case involving a child and you have Megan's Law... Um, And all of these other laws that have been passed and put into effect as a result of something horrific that has happened Mm -hmm. in an attempt to prevent other people from experiencing it. There is also Gabriel's Law. Yes. Which has not been passed. It actually didn't make it through the California legislature, which is crazy to me. But the things, how things work like that just fucking blow it's, my mind yes so gabriel's law is also known as assembly bill 1450 and this would require all california counties to establish an online database for agencies such as law enforcement child welfare and district attorney's offices to cross report substantiated allegations of child abuse and neglect by january 1 2030 so this makes sense basically the different agencies that were involved in Gabriel's case were not communicating with each other. Yeah. So the sheriff's department had responded multiple times. I think the doc said a total of four visits involving eight different deputies had visited the home and taken zero action. And then you have DCFS not communicating with the sheriff's department. Right. And they visited the home multiple times. Stephanie Rodriguez went four times and I think Pat Clement went three times. So Mm -hmm. seven visits from them, four visits from the sheriff's deputies and they were not communicating. And potentially if they would have been communicating, they would have seen the need in time. Right. So Gabriel's law is basically let's make one database that all agencies are reporting to. So it, something like this can be caught. Right. Yeah, I mean, if the sheriff is showing up somewhere where he knows DCFS has been before, the, yes. the level of concern is probably going to raise just a bit at least. Right. And vice versa. Right. So that's essentially the bill summary. As I said, this did not get off the legislature floor in California. And um, so there is a petition that you can sign. Yes. On change.org, which we will also link in our episode description. You can go to change.org and sign the petition to help get Gabriel's Law back in front of lawmakers. Mm -hmm. Um, They are shooting at making it a nationwide database. Because if you... As they fucking should. If you're in California and you deal with the California DCFS and then you move to Kansas, Mm -hmm. 
that the Kansas Children's Division probably is not going to be aware of what happened in California. So Gabriel's law shooting to be nationwide would mean you can't just switch states to escape child abuse allegations in one state. Yes. So um, you can sign this petition to get this bill in front of lawmakers and hopefully enough signatures would show Congress the urgency. Yes. I have signed the petition. They're going for 500,000 signatures, and I think as of last night, it was 479,000. Yeah, they usually get moving pretty fast on those things. But, I mean, if everyone listening signed it right now, they would clearly surpass that. Yeah, they would. They're definitely on. It's close. It's so close. So, And it's easy. All Mm -hmm. you do is put in your name and an email address, and you've signed it. Yeah. It, it took me less than a minute. Yeah. And you're signing something for the greater good. I mean, you're not signing something sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not asking you, per, like, personal information. You don't have to enter any personal information aside from your name. Yeah. And honestly, if you wanted to make up a name, you could. Yeah, you probably could. You could just make up a name. And I have a toss-off email that I use if I don't want to continue getting emails from somewhere. Yeah. You could use your burner email Put in a fake name and sign it anyway. Yeah. If you're afraid of entering your information on a website, that's completely plausible. But this change.org also did petitions for Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. and George Floyd. So they they're constantly working to bring awareness to situations that authorities want under the rug. Yes. So I think the big takeaway from this episode and why we wanted to cover this is to just insist that if you see something, say something. Absolutely. And like we've said before, you can do this anonymously and you can go to childwelfare.gov. So that's childwelfare, which is W-E-L-F-A-R-E dot G-O-V. And that will give you all the information you need by state on how to report what you're seeing, possible child abuse, child neglect. And in our first part, we included the toll-free numbers just locally for us, because we know a lot of our listeners are from Missouri specifically. You can call 800 392 3738 to report in Missouri and to report in Kansas, you can call 800-922-5330. Keep in mind, you can also report on their websites and there are also a lot of information on the Children's Division website for social services For Missouri, you can go to dss.mo.gov for more information, but also hop on these websites just if there ever, I mean, if there ever is a moment that, I mean, you obviously can't take hours and hours to report something and it'll, it'll get you to where you need to go to report something. Mm -hmm. The whole saying like it takes a village that's not reserved just for your family and friends. Right. I think that is for everyone mm-hmm. because as adults, it is our responsibility to keep kids safe. Right. 
And if you feel like something is off, something is probably off. Right. Trust your gut. And if it ends up that everything is just peachy, so fucking what? Yeah. And I think um, something to keep in mind is, and one of the major things that is missing from Gabriel's case and what Arturo Martinez, the security guard who reported, what he said was when he saw Gabriel, Gabriel wasn't saying anything. Gabriel obviously couldn't go up to Arturo and say, I'm being abused. But he said he didn't have to say anything because his body was talking. Right. So use your eyes and you know child abuse when you see it. You just will. And that's yes. exactly what Arturo meant when he said Gabriel's body was talking. Yeah. It was telling everyone that something was wrong and that he was in danger and even the people who saw it and did something, it ended up not mattering because right. the people whose job it was to keep him safe fell down on the job. Yeah. yeah. So a child who's being abused, their body is going to be saying what they cannot. Right. So keep that in mind. If the child may be saying that they fell, the mm-hmm. child may be saying that everything is fine, but let their body tell you what's happening right because they might not have the words Mm -hmm. yeah because they're children that's right that's right and regardless they love their parents even if their parents don't love them yeah that's that's what happened to gabriel he loved his mom he spent this whole eight months in her care desperately trying to please her and she didn't care Mm -hmm. she and asaro giri systematically tortured him and murdered him and nothing was ever no finger was lifted to remove him from the home yeah by the system that is employed to do that Mm -hmm. so we have to make sure that we are on guard as well absolutely And we've said it a hundred times in the last two episodes. If you see something, say something. Yeah. Don't let your inner monologue tell you, oh, it's none of your business. It's probably fine. This is going to be awkward. Just, Just do it. We can all endure a little bit of awkwardness if it means that a child is removed from a dangerous situation. Yes. 100%. So... Please, please sign Gabriel's Laws Petition on Change.org. You can spend 30 seconds to make a difference in the lives of hundreds of children. Absolutely. Um, you can visit the resources, check our links, and, you know, do your part. We all have a job to do. This is all of our burden. Yes. So please don't be silent. Do your part. It's it's that simple. It is. So this has been a rough episode. Yes, it has. And um, if you have made it through these two episodes, you're the fucking best. Like, thank you for listening to these two episodes. 
Thank you for just hearing the story. Please share. Mm -hmm. If you want to share our episodes, that'd be great. We would love that. But at least share his story with someone. Yeah. Whether you tell someone to watch the documentary on Netflix or share an article from the Google with yeah, someone. Because here's the thing. If you maybe struck up a conversation with someone about Gabriel's case, maybe the person you're talking to was like, you know, sometimes I think like my neighbor is like hurting their kid. Right. Because maybe there are things happening around us that we don't just right off the bat recognize. Right. And so... Gabriel deserves to be talked about and people need to know what happened to watch for the warning signs. That's right. Because it isn't and wasn't just Gabriel that endures this kind of stuff. There's recently been other horrible fucking things that have happened to children in our area. Right. So I think the moral of this story is if you see something, say something. That's right. And you just reminded me that I wrote down at the end of the Netflix documentary, uh, they go on to talk about other cases. Mm -hmm. So two weeks after the trials of Asaro Aguirre and Pearl Fernandez ended... Another child in L.A. County, the same area that Gabriel was from, died of child abuse. His name was Anthony Avalos, and it was the same community. He had also had similar DCFS contact, Mm -hmm. remained in the home, and subsequently died. Two weeks after Gabriel's murderer's were convicted. Mm -hmm. And from 2013, when Gabriel was murdered, to the time of the filming of the documentary, over 150 children in L.A. County died of abuse or neglect. And all cases had had some contact with DCFS. Wow. The most recent to that documentary was the case of four-year-old Noah Quattro, A caseworker had actually went to the judge saying the child was at imminent risk. The judge agreed, issued a ruling to remove the child the very next day, and DCFS never carried out the order, and Noah died within weeks. This is real, you guys. Yeah. Real. These these are straight up people not doing what they're supposed to do. That's right. And this... Gabriel Fernandez's case and murder is not an isolated event. This is not a one-off, wild situation. This happens. The stats that I just said are all from L.A. County. From one county in one state in this entire country. That's right. We can all assume this is happening everywhere. Oh, 100%. Because people are fucking sick. Disgusting. Please don't just assume that you're overreacting. Yeah, you're not. You're not overreacting. This happens and we have, we are in a position to demand our lawmakers to put systems in place that close the gaps in the system. 
Yes, absolutely. So you can go to change.org and sign the petition. And you can demand from your other podcasts that have millions of downloads to cover this case, Mm -hmm. talk about Gabriel's Law, and give resource information to the listeners because that's the only way that lawmakers are going to listen. Yeah. Know the urgency of the situation. We hold elected officials accountable. They answer to us. Mm -hmm. We have to use our vote and we have to demand that they make the changes that we need to see. Right. That's why they are there. That's why they are in office. And we can sign this petition to get Gabriel's Law on the legislation floor in front of Congress so that maybe our different agencies can come together, work in correspondence with each other to make sure that children are removed from dangerous situations. Yes. That's the point of these two episodes we've done. And we really hope that it reaches people who need to hear it. Yes. So with that, please have an amazing rest of your week and um, share the story in whatever way you want to share it. We just really, really hope that you guys are kind to each other out there. Bye, guys. Bye.